the series title of which is behind me, The Gospel-Centered Life. There are participant guides for that, little books that have the notes in them, gives you something to take some notes on if you want it. Those are available at the Resource Center over by the window. If you're new here, they're free. If you're not, they're $5. That $5 is cheaper than what we paid for them, but we're just trying to offset the cost a little bit. But you don't have to have one. You can just listen up if you prefer. And we'll be looking at page 9 in just a bit, page 9 in those participant books. But before we dive into that, here's what's coming up. One item is that we have a, a, a funeral for the mother of one of our members, Lori Andrews. Now, many of you may not know Lori because Lori has been tending to her mother for the better part of three years in her illness, and that's meant working and taking care of her mom, and that's meant the weekends, and that's meant Sundays. So we have not been able to see Lori much, and she hasn't been able to see us much, and she's missed that. But she's been a very dutiful and uh, faithful daughter to her mother. But her mother did pass on Friday at 6 o'clock. And uh, the funeral arrangements are, there's visitation tomorrow at Varan in Allen Park from 2 to 8. And then there'll be a service at the funeral home at 11 on Tuesday. So if uh, Monday, if tomorrow, if some of you were able to get by and encourage Lori Uh, I know that would mean a lot to her. She's been away from the church family for a good bit, and she's missed that, and uh, I know it would lift her spirits if she were to see some of you, if you can do that. So Varan in uh, Allen Park, I think most of you know where that is, just just by Southfield, Allen Road in Southfield, not far from Inner City. Any of you know where Inner City Baptist is and the school and the bookstore and all of that? It's just down Allen Road from there, near Southfield. So Lori's uh, mother's funeral arrangements. Tonight is the annual Sportsman's Dinner Men. That's tonight. We've been announcing it for weeks. If you don't have a ticket, you know, try it next year. Uh, can, they, can, they get a t- can they still get a ticket? Do you know? They can? Okay. I say try it next year, but these guys are going to let you come. So. so if you would like a ticket, you can still get one. Uh, but they are $10, and they are at the uh, Resource Center. We always have a good time with the uh, Sportsman's Dinner. And uh, this is going to be no exception. The folks who've been planning it have put a lot of work into it. Uh, so we look forward to a good time. Five to seven. Starts at five o'clock uh, this evening. Five to seven at the Westfield Activity Center in Trenton. That's the same place where we had our 10-year uh, anniversary dinner back in October. A uh, number of you uh, have been saying other places, Brownstown Community Center, Woodhaven Community Center. It's one of the fun things about being vagabonds like we are. We, we always think it's going to be the place it was last year, and then it's a different place, and we have picnics, and people go to the picnic we had last year. That's happened a number of times. So this is the first time we've had the sportsman's dinner at the Westfield Activity Center. So, but that's why I describe it that way. Same place we had the 10-year anniversary dinner in October, West Road, right behind the uh, Trenton Library, guys, 5 to uh, 7. And then uh, a few other things that are coming up. One is... Two weeks from today, in the afternoon, we will have a congregational meeting, a family meeting, and at that meeting, the primary item uh, for us to discuss will be what we've been able to find out about the building that we're hoping to convert to a ministry center, the former William Taylor Elementary School in Trenton. We've been investigating that as thoroughly as we can to see 
what it will cost to renovate it and comply with uh, code requirements and all that sort of stuff. And we have answers to a lot of that stuff. So, and we're going to have some more in the intervening couple of weeks. So we'll give you every answer we have. Uh, we don't anticipate we will have, well, in fact, I know we won't, because one of the things we have to do is go before the zoning board and get what's called a special use permit to use the building as a church. Now, uh, we've talked with the city about that, and uh, that's going to be a formality, but it's a formality that has to be done, and it's one that we want to have done before we actually purchase it. If some snag uh, were hit on that and they didn't allow us to use it as a church, then obviously that would be a major issue. So we don't expect that to be an issue, but it's an issue that needs to be taken care of before we vote and sign on the dotted line, and it won't be taken care of in the next two weeks. So we won't be voting two weeks from today, but we want to give you as much information as we can and give you a progress report and all of that. So if you can be there, I encourage you to, to do that by all means. We also want you to be able to see the building. A number of you have gone there and seen the outside, but only a handful have actually been in it, those that are on the building committee and so on. So we're going to offer an opportunity to see the building on the inside uh, two weeks from today. Well, that means a crazy schedule Sunday afternoon, February 12th, two weeks from today. And the schedule will be, as soon as we're finished here on that day, then uh, a group of you uh, can go over at 12.30. So straight from here over there, and at 12.30, uh, we'll offer access and a, and a tour of the building to whoever wants to go over. Now, we're going to offer two separate tours, one in hopes that it'll mean that uh, we, can, we can manage the tours uh, because it's been divided into two. The other reason is some of you have children that uh, you want to put down for a nap or one of the parents is going to go home with the children, the other one's going to come for the tour and all that sort of stuff. So to give a little bit of time for that to happen. So we're going to have two. First one will be at 1230. Those who can go without lunch for that, that hour then can go straight over, then get lunch after. And then at 2 o'clock, there'll be another opportunity for a tour for everybody who wasn't able to do it at 12.30. And then at 3.30, we will have our congregational meeting at First of Gibraltar. And the uh, First of Gibraltar is not terribly far from, uh, from the location. So once you get done with your tour at 2 o'clock, we can just go straight over and have the meeting at 3.30. So 12.30, 2 o'clock, 3.30, okay? Two tours, 12.30 and 2. 3.30 will be the congregational meeting at First of Gibraltar. And just a couple other announcements. Next month, um, in fact, just three weeks from yesterday, we will have our next newcomers brunch at our house. And it's a brunch, it's at our place, and it's for newcomers. And a newcomer is defined as you've never been to our brunch. So if you would like to come to a newcomers brunch, we would love to have you. We just need to know you're coming. And there are uh, invitations for that that you can get at the Resource Center. Pick one of those up today so that the gals there can put your name on the list so that we know who's coming. And also so you know where our house is. That invitation has a uh, map to our place. It has our phone number. It reminds you of the date and time as well. So see the table today before you leave, if you would, for the newcomer's brunch. Last, March the 25th is our next baptism. So just under two months, we will have our next opportunity for folks to obey Jesus by being baptized. And baptism, according to the Bible, means that you've been immersed, dunked in water, uh, to signify, symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And so if that has not happened to you, if you were sprinkled as an infant or something like that, that's not baptism as the Bible defines it. 
further, the people who get baptized are the people who have trusted Jesus personally, who have come to them on their own volition and uh, their own accord. And, of course, that's something an infant cannot do. Nobody can do it for you. The old saying is God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. <laughs> so nobody can do it for you. You don't get into the family of God by virtue of your relationship to somebody else. You have a direct relationship with God. That's established by personal faith in Christ. And then subsequent to that, you signify, you show that you have done that and that you believe in the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Christ when you are, are baptized. So if that hasn't happened for you, Jesus says it needs to. And we would love for you to participate on March 25. See me. See me today. Call the office this week. Uh, and we'll set an appointment to talk about what baptism is, what qualifies one to be involved in it, and hopefully you'll be able to participate on uh, March 25. All right, page 9 in your participant books, and I'll allude to the chart that's on page 9, the diagram, in just a moment. But let me remind you briefly what we talked about last week as we introduced this series, The Gospel-Centered Life. I tried to make the case last week that we uh, are to be involved, according to Scripture, in a continual process of change, that none of us should remain stagnant in our growth in grace, in our walk with Christ, but rather all of us should be continually growing in the Lord. So just with that statement alone, I just ask you to pause for just a moment. And ask yourself, is that true of me? That I'm regularly growing in Christ. And that I could, I could say that I see the evidences of God's grace in my life uh, in the growth that I've seen in the last 12 months. You know, ask yourself that. And if the answer to that is, boy, I'm not, I'm not sure, well, I'm glad you're at this series. Because it should be a continual process of growth for each of us. And in order for us to grow, that means change. Change from domination by old patterns of life and change to the image of, of Christ. Meaning, we are progressively thinking more, talking more, and acting more like Jesus. Well, that process involves, though... Uh, a couple of things that, that we'll see on page 9, but which too many people just don't engage in. They just opt out of. Too many professing Christians just adopt the approach that says that's not for me. Now, I don't think I've ever heard anybody quite say it that way, at least not to me. You know, a pastor, hey, preach. That's not for me. I've never heard anybody quite put it that way. But in our actions, that's what we do. Because, as I said last week, many people think that it's, one, not possible to really change. And we've adopted a secular approach that says you can't teach old dogs new tricks and all that. And uh, yet the Bible says that's not only possible, but the second thing that many have falsely adopted is the idea that it's not necessary. The Bible says it's not only possible, it is necessary. But many people think it's unnecessary. And the reason they think it's unnecessary is because they've adopted a false view of what our purpose in life is. Many people functionally, again, people, I don't know if people say this, although some do. I have heard this. 
you know, the only question that really matters is whether you're going to heaven. That's what many people think. It's not true. <laughs> That's not the only question that matters. And if that were the only question that mattered, then as soon as that question were answered, Jesus could just beam you up. And he should just beam you up. I mean, the gig is up, so beam me up. Where do you know what the answer is to the most important question in life, whether I'm going to heaven? Once I trust Jesus, I know I'm going to heaven. So why am I still around here? And that accounts for now, that gap between I've come to Jesus, I know where I'm going in the future, and until that time arrives, I've got time to kill. And what for many people, the Christian life is killing time. I mean, killing time, making ourselves as comfortable as we can until he takes us home. Well, there is, there is nothing that could be further from the truth of what the Bible presents with regard to what we're supposed to be about in the here and now. And we're supposed to be about glorifying God. And glorifying God means shining, displaying, manifesting His character in His world. Or to put it another way, becoming more like Jesus in every area of my life. So, some people think it's not possible. Many people think it's not necessary because the only thing that matters is, am I going to heaven? Both of those are false. Christianity and the church are in the change business. And if I didn't think change was possible, believe me, I would not do what I do every week and almost every day of every week, meeting with people trying to help them change and engaging in the fight myself for change. So the Bible is about and Christianity is about and the church is about change. We are in the change business. Now, here's why that change, how that change should occur, page 9. You see the diagram there that shows... The, the, the cross, the crosses, in between two diverging arrows. So you've got one that's going upward, you've got one that's going downward. And the one that's trending upward is God's holiness, an increasing awareness of God's holiness. And then the one that's going downward is an increasing awareness of my own flesh, my own sinfulness, my own struggle. And so what the diagram is seeking to communicate is at the point where those two lines begin to diverge, that point it has labeled for you conversion. You've come to Jesus. You now have His Holy Spirit. You've been converted. <laughs> right? We use those words even. What's that mean? I've been converted. What well, means that's a change. I mean, isn't it? A conversion. You got a conversion van or conversion vehicle. The thing was changed from something else. I mean, it was. You've been changed. You've begun a change process and conversion. And that change process then starts at a point in time, and then in time, you become increasingly aware of the holiness of God. That's the top line. And increasingly aware of your own sinfulness. And ironically, the gap gets larger as you go. I mean, you might not think that, but... In fact, so it's kind of counterintuitive, but in fact, it does. The gap grows as you go on. I become more aware 
of how righteous and holy God is and how far I fall short of his character. It doesn't mean God's becoming more holy. It's not possible. So the word awareness is very important. It's my awareness of God's holiness increases. My awareness of my own sinfulness increases. And here's the crucial issue then. As that gap gets wider, as it should, as it did in the life of the Apostle Paul, I told you about last week, and it should for you and me, now what's going to fill that increasingly large gap? And the diagram has the cross in between. You see that? As the gap between my awareness of God's holiness and my awareness of my own sinfulness increases, the cross becomes ever larger. And that's what that depicts. The cross becomes larger. Jesus becomes more precious. What Jesus did on the cross becomes more valuable. As I see my need more acutely, daily and weekly and yearly, I'm all the more amazed at who Jesus is and what he did for me. That's why the cross becomes bigger. Now that's the way it's supposed to go. The cross fills the gap in my awareness of the depth and the width and the length of the love of God. Does that language sound familiar? It's from the book of Ephesians. As Paul prays, that's how he's praying. Why? Because he's becoming increasingly aware of who Jesus is and what he did. And he exalts in that. And he wants to please this Jesus with his life. But he doesn't try to fill the gap with anything other than the cross. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, chapter 2, When I was with you, verses 1 and 2, I sought to know nothing among you, other than Christ and Him crucified. Do you guys remember that? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. It's the cross. The cross is central. The cross stays central. And the cross becomes larger. All right. That's how Paul did it. That's how it's supposed to be done. That's what you should be doing. That's what I should be doing. But there's an alternative way to fill that gap. And many people fill the gap between their growing awareness of God's holiness and their growing awareness of their own sinfulness, not with the cross, but with the cross and some other stuff. So look at page 10. So on page 10, you have that diagram with conversion point, divergent lines, God's holiness, our sinfulness, but in between, notice the cross. You see that? The cross, instead of becoming larger, the cross has remained the same. And that's because for many people, the cross is this thing that happened back at the point of conversion. The cross was this thing I needed then, but I already got that. Now, I still have it, thankfully. Once I got it, I have it, so it continues on. So you see the cross. But notice, the cross remains the same. Jesus doesn't grow in our estimation. The cross doesn't grow in our estimation. 
But we started going to church and we started hearing preacher types talk about how holy God is and how sinful we are. And we have that growing awareness. What's going to fill that gap then if it's not the cross? That's the question. And the reason that the cross remains the same size as time goes on, despite the fact that our awareness of God's holiness has increased, our awareness of our own sin has increased, the cross stays the same. Here's why. Because we bought into a false notion that the cross is only for initial salvation. And once you've got that, you keep it, but you don't need it anymore. You don't need the gospel, and you don't need the cross. Jesus died for our sins. Once my sins are forgiven, I'm glad that's taken care of. Got that insurance policy. Let's move on to the next topic. That sounds flippant. It is. It's true. It's what many people, that's the way many professing Christians live. The cross never becomes larger. Now, I'd like to just give you a passage. There are a lot of them that disproves that false notion that the cross is only for unsaved people. And once you get it now, you've got it at conversion and you don't need the cross and the gospel to grow. The book of Romans is undoubtedly the most profound statement of the gospel, the good news that there is in the entire Bible. Now notice I said the book of Romans. (laughs) The whole book. 16 chapters worth, but it's a profound statement of what the gospel is. Now, how do I know that that's what it is? Well, because in the first chapter of Romans, verses 16 and 17 are given the theme of the entire book, the entire 16 chapters. Verse 16, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes. And then in verse 17 it says, for, here's why it's the power of God to everyone who believes. Because, for, in it, in the gospel, is found a righteousness from God. A righteousness that comes from God, not from me. There's the good news. (laughs) My righteousness doesn't come from me. And so I'm not only not ashamed of this gospel, I'm ready to go to Rome, the capital of the empire, and risk my life to proclaim it, says Paul who wrote that. Okay, how does that prove it's not just for unbelievers, though? Because even though he gives the theme in verses 16 and 17, he tells you in verse 7 of Romans 1 to whom he's writing. And in verse 7 of Romans 1, He says, I am writing this letter to the saints at the church of Rome. Now, when the Bible says the saints, depending on your background, you may have a patron saint, you may have a pantheon of saints, those in your mind may be the really cool people, they've somehow attained to sainthood, they've been canonized. When the Bible talks about a saint, the word saint is simply the ones who have been set apart. And guess who that is? That's everybody who's been called out of the world and to Jesus. The saints at Rome are Christians. 
Now, do you see what's happening here? I, Paul, am writing a 16-chapter treatise on the gospel. It's the power of God for everyone who believes because in it, a righteousness that's outside of ourselves from God is made known. Who am I writing that to? Pagan unbelievers? No, I'm writing it to believers. Verse 7, to the saints who are in Rome. You know why? Because you need this. And you, even though you're, you have experienced the dot on the chart of conversion, you now need to increasingly understand that the gospel and the cross that's central to it fills the gap between our awareness of God's holiness and our awareness of our own sinfulness. But if that doesn't happen, something or some things else will fill that. And we're going to see what those things are that will fill it and are filling it for some, some of you and for many professing Christians. We're going to see what those things are that fill instead of the cross, that substitute instead of the cross in a minute. But before we do, think about this. Why is that? Why is it that people look for substitutes to fill the gap rather than allowing the cross to fill the gap? Well, one is what I said about their understanding of salvation. It's just something that happens in the past and it doesn't have relevance in the present. Okay, that's one. But here's another one. You have professing Christian people who want to please God but are not secure as they pursue the pleasure of God. Let me, let me say that again. You have people who have been converted. They've come to Christ. The point that's in the diagram. They want to please God with their lives. But they are not secure in Christ as they pursue the pleasure of God. They are not secure. Now, how do I know this? Because they feel like, and we will see the ways that it happens, they have to supplement the cross and the gospel with something else. They're not secure in it. So they've got to find a substitute, an additive. We'll see what the additives are, but should you be secure? Having come to Christ, and yet at the same time want to increasingly please Him? And as you're pursuing his pleasure, pleasing him, be absolutely confident and secure in that such that you don't have to add anything else to it or substitute anything else for it. Shouldn't you be? But I'm here to tell you many people are not. Now, how can you be? And then we'll see what the people who are not substitute. How can you be? Let me give you an illustration, then I want to show you Ephesians 1 in just a moment. But think of a parent-child relationship. Your child wants to please you. Your child wants to increase your pleasure of them, that you are pleased with them, that you affirm them, that you're happy with them, right? But that child has a relationship with you that is unshakable. 
And no matter what that child does next week or next month, that relationship is unshakable. They belong to you as your child, and that will never change. The extent to which that child is secure in that will determine how he or she goes about trying to please you. Do I know, as the child of Ken and Kim Brown, since my daughters aren't in here, I'll use us, does Elena Brown know that no matter what, she will always be our beloved child? And the extent to which she knows that means that she is able to risk even failing. And even if I get it wrong, or even if I get something wrong, my parents are going to love me and accept me and receive me. So I don't have to then fill it in with anything else. I don't have to cover it. I don't have to defend it. I don't have to blame shift. When I mess up, I confess up. That's pretty good. I just made that up. (laughs) So I can, and I can be straight about it because my relationship with my parents is not dependent on my performance. I'm secure in my relationship with them. Now, should we be secure in our relationship with Christ? Ephesians 1. Here's what Ephesians 1 says. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, notice the phrase, in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. For, verse 4, because... He chose us, notice again how, in Him, in Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Now notice verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace, Grace he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, that phrase, in the one he loves. His acceptance has been given in the one he loves. Who's the one he loves? In the NIV, one has got a capital O. (laughs) The one he loves is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son chosen in Him from before the foundation of the world, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And God has now adopted us into His family, given us all of these spiritual blessings, freely in the one He loves, none other than Jesus Christ. So here's what that means. As long as the Father will not disown God the Son, He can never disown you. Because you are in Christ, 
And Christ is the one he loves. So we are in the family of God, adopted into the family of God. We become sons and daughters of God because of our relationship to the Son, God the Son, the one he loves. So now I can go from the point of conversion with a desire to please this Christ, knowing that I'm secure, come what may, whatever happens. And now when I mess up, I can confess it. I don't have to blame shift. I don't have to, but if I don't have that, now think of it the other way. I don't have that. I don't have that security. I don't know if my parents love me. I don't know if I'll be accepted. Now what kinds of things do I do? Rather than looking to the cross, I've got to have some other stuff. I've got to defend myself. I have to cover it. And those are all listed on page 11. That's what page 11 is about. These are ways that we minimize then our sin. So rather than boldly moving forward in my desire to please God because I know that even when I fail, I'm accepted by Him and the cross covers it, if I don't believe that, if I don't have that security, now I'm going to try to fill it in with some other things. And on page 11 and 12, you have those. I sin, so I defend. So this is a diagnostic tool for each of us. Do you have people telling you you're defensive? How well, do you, how well are you able to accept correction? If you find yourself not being able to easily and graciously accept correction and you immediately have to defend yourself, there's a lack of security there. It's the secure, it's the secure person who can say, not only, yes, do I see that I messed things up, yes, I sinned. Not only that, I'm actually thankful to have it pointed out. I want to improve. I want to become more like Jesus. Not in order to go to heaven, not in order for Him to love me more, but because He has loved me with an everlasting love that is unshakable, I want to please Him. And therefore, I am glad to know where my failures are. But the person who doesn't have that, they have to immediately shoot back, start defending. So ask yourself, when was the last time you were approached by a brother or sister, a spouse, a child, and confronted, hopefully lovingly, with your own sin and your own failure? And what did you do? What was your reaction to that? Friend, if it's anything other than a willingness to listen, to be corrected, and to thank God that he's allowing you yet another opportunity to conform to the image of Jesus. If it's anything other than that, then you're filling the gap with something other than the cross. Defending. So page 11, I find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin. When confronted, my tendencies to explain things away, talk about my successes, justify my decisions. 
so people are hesitant to approach me. I rarely have conversations about difficult things in my life. Faking. You know, I can't, I can't own up to it, so I have to make it look like it's better than it is. Oh, man, that's, that's just church. I mean, I'm sorry, but that's the way our churches are. Our churches are full of people faking. Who act like they've got it together when in fact, <laughs> it's, so, it's so stupid, really. I mean, we all show up at a place and sing about amazing grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. You know, we all admit we're wretches, but I mean, not really. And so we, and so we, we fake it. Our men's meetings, that Brother Rich is uh, leading for us. One of the features of those men's meetings is you get together with other men and you discuss things. And you guys that have been there, you know, for many of us, that's an adjustment to be able to say, this is what I struggle with. Because we've been faking it. But one of the best things we can do is stop faking. And, stop being, and start being honest about what we profess to believe about our own condition before God. Defending faking. I strive to keep up appearances. Maintain a respectable image. My behavior to some degree is driven by what I think others think of me. I don't like to think reflectively about my life. As a result, not many people know the real me. Hiding. I have met people who, who have a social relational problem. They find themselves not being able to interact with folks. And part of the reason that they can't do that is because of their own view of themselves and their false view of other, others. They, th they bought into the fake. Other people have, are, are better than me. They have it better than me. They do this self-talk that doesn't reflect what God has said about them in Scripture and as a result, they feel the need to hide from other people, never open up to other people, find themselves alone. Exaggerating. Look, there's this gap. The gap's got to be filled. How's it going to be filled? Make myself better than I am. And so I tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought. I make, good, I make things both good and bad out to be much bigger than they are so I can get attention. And as a result, things often get more attention than they deserve. They have a way, way of making me stressed and anxious. And then two more, blaming. I can't own it. It couldn't have been me. If it is me, now there is this, there is this remaining gap between the standard and where I am. That gap's got to be filled. It's not filled by the cross and my security in it. And so I've got to blame somebody else. It can't be me. Or it's just no big deal, downplaying it. Now, friends, in that list, there are things there to describe you and me, aren't there? And as you see yourself in that list, you find some deficiency in your approach to filling the gap between God's holiness and your own sinfulness. Now, that can be summarized 
in, if you look at page, I think it's 16. Yes, page 16. And as you turn to page 16, this should be about the point where an alarm will go off. You know, I just need to say, if you're that bored, I mean, do you have to go pull an alarm or something to get us, to get us out of the thing? Just walk out. We'll let you leave on your own, of your own accord, okay? <laughs> but page 16. We're almost done was my point in bringing all that up. You could summarize all of what I've been saying there by those two words at the top of page 16. As we shrink the cross, it involves pretending and performing. Pretending that we're better than we are, the fake. Pretending that it's not as bad as it really is. Performing, acting like we're better than we are. Uh, in, in what we do, exaggerating what we do, inflating what we do to fill the gap, pretending and performing. Now take a look at page 17 and the second full paragraph in the middle of the page that says, look again at the bottom line of the chart. The bottom line says, growing awareness of my flesh and sinfulness. Growing in our awareness of our sinfulness is not fun. It means admitting to others and, and to ourselves and others that we're not as good as we think we are. And if we don't do that, if we don't face that, then we will, in the middle of that paragraph, end up pretending. But then the next paragraph, growing in our awareness of God's holiness, is also challenging. It means coming face to face with God's righteous commands, the glorious perfections of His character. It means realizing how dramatically we fall short. It means reflecting on His holy displeasure towards sin. If we're not rooted in God's acceptance of us through Jesus, then we will compensate by trying to earn God's approval through our performance. And that performance looks like the next two pages. There's a list, and I think it is an extremely helpful list, of ways in which people try to perform and pretend in order to make up the gap. See job righteousness there? I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. Family righteousness. Because I do things right as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. Theological righteousness. I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. You know, you wear one of those t-shirts that says, you know, Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, more culturally savvy. I'm superior. Schedule, flexibility. Notice the one at the top of page 19, legalistic. You don't think, drink, smoke, chew, date girls who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days is our mindset on that kind of stuff. number of us here, I include myself in this, came from backgrounds that were called holiness backgrounds. I was Pentecostal. It's called Pentecostal holiness. Holiness meant there's a list of stuff you don't do. And then there's another list of stuff you do. 
If you stay away from the list of don'ts and you do the list of do's, then you've achieved what Jesus wants out of you. I grew up with that. Some of you grew up with that. And you judged other people. I judged other people. People who don't do the list that they're supposed to or people who participate in the list they're supposed to avoid. I judge them. I'm superior to them. But then what ultimately happens is things start to fall apart for you. You see that it, it ain't going so well for you. Despite the fact that you're doing all of those things and you're keeping the list, all the legalistic list, it's supposed to be a smoother ride. I'm doing all the right stuff. That was the bargain, God. I do my stuff. You hold up your end of the bargain. You have not held, upheld your end of the bargain, God. And do you know what happens to that person? I'm asking you. We're going to end here. But I just want you to see how this plays out in the life of people. What happens to that person who grew up with a mentality that if I keep the list, it'll go smooth? And then it doesn't go smooth. What happens to that person? you got one angry, bitter fundamentalist on your hands. He is ticked. He's ticked at God. He's ticked at the church he grew up in. He's ticked at all the people around him. And he carries that anger with him every moment of every day. Just waiting for that volcano volcano to explode. I came from that kind of background. Some of you have come from that kind of background. And you're experiencing that sort of volatility in your Christian walk because of it. Now, when I say volatility, you explode. Then you feel bad about it. So then what you do is take on a new ministry. That's the balm for your soul. Do more stuff. I messed up. The cross doesn't take care of it. My performance takes care of it. So now... Double down and do more stuff. And I keep doing more stuff and more stuff, and it keeps getting, it doesn't get better. And I explode, and, I, and it's up and down and up and down. Now you go through every one of these, and you can find that same kind of pattern going on with people who find their righteousness in something other than the cross and the gospel of Jesus. We're going to conclude. We're going to pray, and we're done. But I want to encourage you to take this list on these pages, 18 and 19, read through each one of these and ask yourself which one of those describes you or more that describes you. And dear friend, I encourage you to face it honestly. And you can face it honestly because there's a cross that bridges the gap between God and you. Thanks be to God. And it's not any of the junk that you've been pursuing that's going to bridge that gap, only the cross of Jesus. And when you have the cross of Jesus, now you can look at it and you can say, ah, I see what I've been doing. I see what's been wrong. I see what's had hold of me. I see why it's so up and down and up and down and why I've not had joy and why I have this seething anger and bitterness. And now, finally, I can let go of it. And I can cast all my care upon him. I can throw it to Jesus. You're carrying around that weight of all that junk and you're too weak to carry it. And there's only one person who can carry that. 
And that's the Lord Jesus on the cross. And so you give it to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.